All right, so I have a strange question. Anyone ever seen any Bibles in this room? I'm gonna I'm gonna be straight with you. This is the weirdest church experience I've ever had. I tell you about the second weirdest church experience I ever had. Second weirdest church experience I ever had is at the Third Baptist Church of Minneapolis. The Third Baptist Church, I was part of a touring team. We did performances all over, all kinds of denominations. And at the Third Baptist Church, they had us in to, to do a performance there. And they, uh, on their altar, they had an onk, some eagle feathers, some seashells, and uh, one Celtic cross. And for their, so their praise and worship time, they had uh, two guys with guitars who came out, and we sang Beatles songs and Cat Stevens songs for worship. Oh my gosh. I Want to Hold Your Hand, my favorite worship song of all time, which uh, I've never heard done as a worship song anywhere else. And they had communion, they, where they passed a loaf of bread around, and they passed a, a cup of wine around, and... At the end of the service, as we were breaking our equipment down and all the congregation had gone, the pastor had the like leftover half of a loaf of bread and half of a cup of wine, and he sat, sat there eating and drinking while he was talking to us after the service. Yeah, that was a little odd. And yet there's something about this that is just a little stranger to me, because there's, there's very little structure here. So, again, you have to help me out if I'm stepping on your breakfast, but I'm going to go ahead and start. The, the no Bible thing, a little bit of a challenge. Because I think it's important if someone tells you something's in the Bible, you should look it up. In fact, in uh, Proverbs 31.7, it says you should always look up anything someone claims is in the Bible. Here, let me, let me quote it directly. Proverbs 31.7, always look up anything someone claims is in the Bible. That is a powerful piece of wisdom. And if you haven't grasped how important it is, I should probably tell you there are only 30 chapters in the book of Proverbs. I just made that one up. <laughs> Trust is a wonderful thing, and as a pastor and a teacher, I certainly hope to earn yours, but I need you to check me. Um, now, I have been known occasionally to say controversial things, and from time to time... Sometimes, but not often, I hold to less popular interpretations of some biblical passages or ideas. But I'm going to make you guys three promises. First, I am a very, very careful researcher. I will not say anything without specific reasoning as to why I am saying it and without scholarly backup for my position. Second, when my position is in the minority, I will make sure to do my best to present whatever the view or popularly debated idea is that is on the other side so that you can make up your own mind about who's right or who's wrong. And that's the third promise. It's okay to disagree with me. Reasonable, pe reasonable people can all look at the same evidence and come to different ideas and different conclusions. It is possible. I will not hate you, reject you, or even unfriend you on Facebook if you choose a position that is different than mine, even though you're wrong. So, with that said, bring out your Bibles. Alright, I don't know if I'm going to fix this by next week, but we're going to get Bibles in this room. 
so that you have an opportunity to pull up a Bible and take a look. Uh, hopefully, I'm going to go on verses that you actually know today. How many of you know that you have memorized Bible verses? Like two, three of you. Excellent. I'm willing to bet that you will know this Bible verse or uh, that I, wor- I work with today or that you will uh, know it by the time we're done. I can say I love teaching from the book of Genesis. Who knows which book in the Bible is Genesis? It is the first one. You know why I love teaching from the book of Genesis? It is the first one. Everyone can find it. If I tell you I'm going to teach out of the book of Nahum, half of you won't even realize there was such a thing. I once said quoted from the book of Zephaniah and I had a third year seminary student come and tell me there was no such book yes there is it's just harder to find than Genesis now another reason that I love the book of Genesis is because everything is in there everything is in the book of Genesis everything that comes after Genesis leans back on it kind of like supporting beams pressing into a foundation Genesis is the platform for the theology and the story of all the scripture that comes after it And the stories of Genesis, they're great. They weren't written down until the days of Moses. Uh, Now, church tradition says that God inspired Moses to collect them together to write them during the Exodus. Because, you know, he had 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. What else are they going to do? Might as well collect some stories and write them down. That's the earliest written word, that period of time, that's when the earliest writing had evolved. And so as writing became a thing and literacy became a thing, that is when the scriptures started to be written down. And before this, the history of God's interaction with man and man's interaction with God was all remembered and passed on through oral traditions. And oral traditions where you had to recite a story word for word the same as your teacher or you were not allowed to tell the story. I, I love that about oral traditions. We always think oral tradition, nowadays we think like playing a game of telephone, where you'll whisper to someone, your aunt drives a purple Honda, and they'll whisper something to the next person who whispers something to the next person who whispers something to the next person who heard, bananas are good and yellow. Completely different. But in oral tradition, the way that oral histories were carried on, they had to be precise. They could not change anything. It couldn't even change pronunciation without being disallowed from telling the story. And it's these stories in particular, the stories about creation and the relationship between humankind and their creator that are all pulled together in Genesis. These contain the seeds of this larger story that God tells with the scriptures as we have them today. So just as seeds are so much more than those little dried pebbles of plant matter that you find when you first start with them, So the Bible is often more than we realize. It's not just a bunch of dry numbers and boring stories, I promise. Now today we're going to dig for some deeper meaning. And hopefully when we get to that deeper meaning, it'll be like a seed. It's going to sprout into bushels of understanding for us as we go to read the rest of Scripture. Now, I'm going to give you some fair warning. You've probably figured this out already. I am the uh, beneficiary, or some might say the victim of multiple seminary experiences. I have uh, multiple seminary degrees from different traditions, including the Salvation Army tradition, and sometimes, in spite of my best efforts to keep that all in check, I get carried away and I start to let that training leak out. Um, For example, I've actually, notice I keep glancing at my notes, I've actually written out a full manuscript of what I'm going to say today word for word. 
that's because if I go off my notes, I have a tendency to tell you everything I know. No one wants to know everything I know. I can bore myself. I spend uh, roughly an hour of prep time for every minute that I preach, and my average sermon is about 30 minutes. So enjoy your bacon. Can't leave now. You make me feel bad. That was a joke. You could. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to talk back. It's okay to sit quietly and do nothing. All right, I got one. Good. Um, if I get off my notes too much, I am guaranteed to overshare. I'm going to apologize for that in advance because I do have a tendency to do that from time to time. Uh, additionally, today, I have written a sermon. You all ready for this? This is a traditional expository sermon, which means I have carefully alliterated three points out of the passage that we're going to study today. Being alliterated means all three points have a similar sound and cadence to them. And uh, the intention is to create associations in your brain that help you remember what it is that I say. Because, generally speaking, by the time people leave a church building, they've already forgotten whatever was in the sermon. So the hope is that by alliterating things, you'll go out of here and like two days from now, you'll go, wait, he said something about this thing. I remember that point. Now I remember what he said. I don't know if that's going to work or not. But maybe you will remember some piece of clever alliteration. Sadly, my alliteration is never clever. I, well, not much, anyway. I'm gonna, we're going to try today. Today we're going to learn about gods, gaps, and gunk. Everyone say gods. Just testing my power over you, that's good. Gods. Now, if I were to say to you all out here that gods created the universe, you would probably brand me as a heretic. But, if we literally translate the first verse of the Bible into exact word-for-word English, that's what it says. And that would give you the wrong impression of what it means, but it certainly gives us something that we need to look at right away if we want to understand who created the universe. Now, hopefully those of you who had Bibles have found your way to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to read the first verse. I'm going to read it to you, and you're going to realize that you already know this verse. Are you ready? Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many of you knew that verse? See, you knew scripture already. You thought you didn't have stuff memorized. Now, I don't think I'm going to shock anyone by telling you that the book of Genesis is written entirely in Hebrew. Probably not the version you have, but originally it was written down in Hebrew. Kind of sad it wasn't written down in English because uh, by writing it in Hebrew they've created some problems. First, how many of you here read ancient Hebrew? Just me? And it were two of us, excellent. You probably know better than I do. I need a dictionary to puzzle most stuff out. Fortunately for the rest of us, there are a lot of hard working men and women who know both English and Hebrew and have tried to make it possible for us to read God's Word in our own language. Isn't that great? Sometimes, though, we lose something. We lose a little meaning because English doesn't capture the full meaning of the original. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, In English, a great example for this is the word love. I love my wife. I really love my wife. 
You know what else I love? Ice cream. I love ice cream. And I love pie. You are so right. I do love pie. The 11th commandment, thou shalt eat pie at every opportunity. Got to go to Sweetie Pies? All right. I'm getting getting restaurant tips. I'm in. Anything that's got pie in the name, I'm there. Now, the fact that I love my wife and the fact that I love ice cream are two completely different things. In English, we understand that there's more meaning in one of those words than the other, or there had better be. Um, but that's because we know English and we can make the distinction. But if you translate that word love into another language, just straight from one to another, it, it loses that. So they might think that I married a bowl of ice cream. I've been married to that bowl of ice cream for 27 years. Yeah. You'd think it would have melted by now. You just don't get the same picture. So when we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth in Hebrew, the word that's being translated as the word God is the word Elohim. I promise I'm not going to turn every sermon into a language lecture, but everyone say Elohim. Elohim, yeah. It's a, a good word to know. It is um, not a name, it's a description. Of what? Uh, it's God. Except that it's more than that. The word Elohim by itself is actually a plural word. It means gods, and it suggests something that is more than two, but less than four. It doesn't necessarily mean three, but it's more than two and less than four. Does your head hurt yet? I'm good at making people's head hurt. Now, before I make your brain explode, let me uh, rush to assure you of something. This is still referring to the one true God. Even though the word Elohim is a plural word, it is used here in Genesis 1.1, and in every place that it refers to God, the Creator, it is used in a singular sense. And I would love to give you an example of how that works, but I have yet to find a word in English that does that. That you, It is a plural word that can be used in a singular sense. I have not found it. What this means, though, is that in Hebrew, when they say God created, they're talking about something more, something bigger than just this one thing, this package. There's something bigger than is conveyed in the English word God. There's a sense of something that is a multiplicity. It's more than two, less than four. The specific sense of this word really is that of kind of a trio or a trinity, as it were. And to the ancient Jewish sages and rabbis, when they taught about this creation, they would talk about Elohim. They would say this meant God, the one God in his three aspects, the male aspects, the female aspects, and the spirit. That's the the way that they would consider this. In our Christian tradition, our understanding is this is God whom we call the Father, God the Son incarnated as Jesus Christ, and God the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons or aspects, but one God. Think about an egg. You got an egg, you got a shell, you got a white, you got a yolk. Which one is the egg? The egg. egg. (laughs) They're all the egg. And yet somehow they're all different. So there's a good way to think perhaps about God is think of him as as an egg. I'm not going to push that too far because all analogies break down and you push them too far. 
One of our Salvation Army doctrines says there are three persons in the Godhead, undivided in essence and co-equal in power and glory. Or, it's described uh, this way in um, the passage that opens the Gospel of John. This is John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So, who created the universe? God did. Excellent. The one God, the one true God, who is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, but who can just be called God as long as we understand that it means more than just God. Right? It gets easier after this. There is no test, by the way. Not not here. Yeah. The Bible often tells us more than we realize it does. So in this single verse, in this single word... There's this seed for the whole concept of the Trinity, which has been an important but hard to understand part of Christian faith for over 2,000 years. Almost 2,000 years. So what we need to recognize is that God wants us to know him so much that he included this detailed description of who and what he is right away in this very first sentence of the scripture, the Bible. In fact, it seems to have been so important that this first verse is actually a creation story all by itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That is a whole creation story. Which is interesting because then the second verse starts a new creation story. Some people miss that the first two chapters of Genesis actually have three different creation accounts. They might be three separate stories of three different creation experiences, or they could be three points of view about one creation. But, or it could actually be three chapters describing three parts or three perspectives on one story as well. But the thing we can say for sure is that there are gaps in our knowledge. We don't know everything. Especially not about creation. We just don't know everything. Back to our scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty. That's the way it says in the New International Version. Here again, though, there's a deeper reading we could use. Rather than being formless and empty, we could read, uh, by translating more literally the, the Hebrew, we could read that the earth was wasted chaos and nothingness. There's this subtle suggestion of something that has come before which has caused some destruction. And the ancient sages were divided on the fuller meaning of that. As are all the modern commentators. Some people think that this is significant and some people think that this is ignorable. It's not important. And rather than deal with the obvious confusion, a lot of people just read the two verses together and treat the first verse as kind of a title of what's going to happen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, let me tell you how it happened. The earth started out as formless and void, and they go on from there. For a number of reasons involving linguistics and sentence construction in ancient Hebrew, the kind of people who are geeky enough to spend large amounts of time taking this kind of thing apart, sorry, that'd be me, Those kind of people say with some certainty that verse 2 is the beginning of its own story. There's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. In fact, this has led to what is called the gap theory. We had gods, now we've got a gap. The gap theory says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Time passed. Something happened to the earth, making it formless and void, and then a second creation began. I don't know how much I actually buy into that whole idea, 
but it does provide food for thought. I might not buy into all of it if it wasn't for a couple of little things, or perhaps I should say big things. Dinosaurs are a big thing. Dinosaurs are a huge sticking point for certain people called young earth creationists. They think the earth's been around for between six and 10,000 years and that God created dinosaur bones and stuck them in the planet to confuse us, I guess. Examination of the planet we live on shows that dinosaurs roamed the earth for millions of years, but then, according to current science, something big hit the earth. An asteroid or a piece of a comet or some other celestial body. And it caused massive destruction and plunged the earth into darkness, leaving it formless and empty. Sense a theme? Connection, maybe? And while it might be completely unconnected, Scripture also describes the fall of a celestial being to earth. It tells us about the rebellion of an angel named Lucifer against God. This is Isaiah 14, verse 12. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. And then in Revelation chapter 12, that same angel is described as a dragon who is hurled to the earth, breathing hate and destruction. And, well, I cannot say for certain that this is an event that took place between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. If it did happen that way, if this was a literal fall and not just a metaphor, that would answer some of these other questions around the creation stories, even while it opened up a whole set of new questions. The point is, there's gaps in our knowledge. I can't tell you exactly what happened in creation because I wasn't there. We don't know everything about creation or about God's story. There are some things that are a mystery to us and probably always will be. Seems like a long way for me to go to get there. It's important to remember, though, because even though the Bible often tells us more than we realize, it never tells us everything. It's like God wants us to figure stuff out for ourselves. God wants us to know him, but that doesn't mean he tells us everything we want to know. Right? You ever go out on a date with someone, you have to ask them questions about their family, and you find that it's more fun learning about them than it is hanging out with them? So date one is great, date two is terrible. I don't I haven't been on a date for 30 years, what do I know? <laughs> Anyway, all of this is in Scripture, and we haven't even got halfway through the second verse. What you're probably starting to see is that when the knowable and the unknowable mix, things get sticky. That's the third point, by the way. After gods and gaps, we get the gunk. Gunk of a sticky mix of knowable and unknowable. But that's also where the Spirit of God comes in. Uh, Back to the top here, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So whether the deep is unformed clay of a newly formed universe waiting for the Creator to shape it, or whether it's the destroyed void left behind by Satan's fall, or whether it's gunk that we know or gunk that clogs our lives with uncertainty, it's the Holy Spirit that comes to the rescue either way. It doesn't matter. This, in fact, all of life, really, is the deep waiting. Who knows what's going to happen tomorrow? I don't see anyone raising their hand. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow either. The deep is waiting. It's always dark. It's unknowable. It's formless. It's chaotic. It could be anything. But the Spirit hovers over all of it. God's Spirit. 
And God's Spirit contains the potential for making and remaking. And that potential gives us hope, even in the darkest of places. Isaiah talks about the power of God's Spirit to restore things that have been lost or broken or gunked up. It's Isaiah 32, verses 14 and 15. He says, The fortress will be abandoned. The noisy city will be deserted. Citadel and watchtower will be a wasteland forever. The delight of donkeys and a pasture for flocks. Until the Spirit is poured on us from on high and the desert becomes a fertile field and the fertile field seems like a forest. Everything kind of goes through this cycle. Destruction, rebirth, destruction, rebirth. No matter the gunk you feel you've built up in your life, no matter how stuck or broken any of us are, God's Spirit can recreate us if we're willing to work with Him to do that. Where we thought our lives had become deserts, the Spirit can turn them back into green fields of new growth. The Bible often tells us more than we realize. And by describing the Spirit of God hovering over the deep of an unformed void, waiting to bring forth an explosion of light and new life, it tells us we can experience that same kind of new creation in our own lives. I like new creation. And I don't think this is in here by accident. I think it's supposed to be a reminder that God wants us to know Him, and through that knowledge, He wants to give us this renewed hope and through that new hope, new life. Because when you embrace a new hope, you are like a seed that's sprouting. You grow into something new. Take that thought into this moment of reflection for today. Let me sum up here. Through God's gaps and gunk, we have seen there is one God who created the universe. He is even more than we imagine Him to be. We've seen that we don't know everything and we probably understand even less than we think we do. And we have seen that no matter how deep the darkness which we feel is lying on us, the Spirit of God is there hovering, waiting to act to bring us new life and new creation in our lives. We got all that from two verses. The Bible often tells us more than we realize. It's all part of God trying to encourage us to know Him as best he can. So, what do we do with that? i got to tell you, this is, as a come-to-Jesus message, this is a terrible one. This is a, in fact, as a, just as a sermon, this is a terrible sermon. This is a great lecture. It's a terrible sermon. But perhaps, in this, there is an opportunity to consider whether you focus on what it means to know God in your life. Have you ever given His Spirit the chance to turn your deserts into blooming fields? Or have you simply tried to ignore the dark void that grows and gnaws on the corners of your soul? If you do want to change, I can tell you, we've got these prayer rails. They're a great place to start. You can come, kneel, pray to God, ask for His guidance, for His deliverance. Ask for His Spirit to direct your paths. Ask for you to have ears to listen. As you think about Your choices, though, I'm going to close us with a couple of songs before we conclude. It worked. If you like to stand while you sing, you are welcome to and encouraged. Oh, Lord, my God.